Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week, the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Hello, Tegan. Hi, Megan. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Oh, lordy. We're changing things up a little bit here. We're recording on a Friday afternoon on my lunch break because I am busy this weekend. (laughs) Yep. So much fun. I like switching it up a little bit. It's kind of fun. Keeps us on our toes. Um, Yeah, so I'm working from home today. I've got a lot to do anyways, so this works perfectly. I have to drive my roommate to the airport, and then the flight that she's getting on and picking somebody up from the flight that's coming back. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I'm just going to wait at the airport for a little bit. and That's very helpful. Is yeah. it like a float plane coming in? No, it's um, it's like a regular-sized like plane, um, but the flight's still only 20 minutes. It's like, it's like one of those tiny, like, it's like a, a smaller plane. Like a six-seater kind of thing? Yeah, I think so. It's, there, it's going out of the south terminal, if that means anything to you. <laughs> like, it's like the, you know, where the Flying Beaver restaurant is? If anyone no. lives in Vancouver and you haven't been to the Flying Beaver restaurant, I would highly recommend it. It's really great. Is it um, in the airport? No, it's not. It's on uh, the river, and you can, it's right it's connected to the the float plane um, terminal, so you get to watch all the float planes come in and take off um, oh, while you're having cool. dinner um, out in Richmond. Um, and they have like really weird looking vehicles to like pull the pope. Uh, oh pope, yeah. Vote. The pope planes. <laughs> the float planes of the water. <laughs> I can't speak again today. It's <laughs> common occurrence apparently. That's fun. No, I, maybe I've flown out of the South Terminal once because I've flown, like, regionally within BC in, on, like, those little BC flights where it's, like, propeller planes and there's, like, 12 people in the plane and there's, like, no bathroom where the bathroom, like, is out of order and there's, like, every bump you feel immensely because you're (laughs) on a propeller plane. Yeah, I think if you've flown up to northern BC at all, you probably would have gone out of the South Terminal. Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, we are kind of a travel podcast, but we're not an airline review podcast. Um, <laughs> we're a true crime travel podcast called Destination Murder. You can follow us on Instagram at Destination Murder Pod, uh, on Twitter at Dust underscore Murder, Facebook is just Destination Murder, and you can leave us a rate and review. Obviously. We love it. Yeah. We're well, here for it. Yep. Three minutes in, cutting the chit-chat, getting right down to business. We're like, hello, please give us attention. Before we get into that, though, oh, how cool right. would it be to listen? <laughs> You're thinking about something else. I, oh. a, a podcast that just, like, reviews airlines? I feel like that would be so funny to listen to. I feel like it would be, but it also would get very boring very quickly. Or it would just be really negative. Like, I can imagine um, if there was, like, an Air Canada review podcast episode, it would just be completely negative. (laughs) Or just, like, talking about the flight the entire time. Like, this is what happened on the flight. 
Yeah. Anyways. Not even... <laughs> Not even, like, the individual airlines, just, like, random people review their flights and talk about what happened on the flight. <laughs> that would be so funny. Just, like, today we're having uh, guest uh, Eric on. Eric flew from Toronto flew. to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Eric, tell us about your flight. <laughs> I watched this TikTok um, the other day. Oh, I really wish I sent it to you. I don't think I did. But this guy that was working, like at the front desk for like an airlines and he was clearly a manager and he was like you have been speaking very um poorly to um my coworker. we don't um we don't handle things like that at our airlines so you will not be flying with us we'll give you a reimbursement for your flight but we suggest maybe you finding a, a flight somewhere else um so that you can get home we suggest spirit <laughs> <laughs> oh okay <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, anyways. Yeah, people get people get so mad at flight attendants for, like, the dumbest reasons. Here's a fact for you um, from me knowing uh, someone who was a flight attendant. Flight attendants don't get paid unless they're in the air. So if you're stuck on the tarmac, they're stuck on the tarmac not getting paid. They want to be in the air just as much as you are, so don't take out your hate on them because they're not getting paid. They're, That's... They're, they're just standing there getting harassed by everybody else. That should uh, be so illegal. I know, right? I don't know how that's legal. Um, so the second piece of the things that we I forgot that we're supposed to talk about, we are um, taking August off. Sorry to say, everyone, but you won't hear from us until September after this episode. We're having a very busy August. I yeah. am going to be out of the country. Yeah. Megan's leaving me yet again. It's fine. Yep. <laughs> And Tegan's going to be very busy yeah. doing Tegan summer things. <laughs> you know, I'm, I've got bachelorette parties that I'm going to. I've got camping trips that I've signed myself up for. And just, I have absolutely no free time at all yeah. the rest of my life. <laughs> but if you're going to be mad at someone, be bad at me because I'm the one that's leaving the country. <laughs> <laughs> Who can't bring her recording stuff no. with her. I mean, I could, potentially, but then I would have, like, kind of nowhere to record over yeah. there. Yeah, and listen, Megan needs a holiday. She's going yep. to go visit her boyfriend. Yeah. Let's all be nice to her and let her just... <laughs> yeah, it's already stressful enough trying to coordinate international travel during a pandemic, even though I'm fully vaccinated. As of today, I'm fully vaccinated. And even though I'm allowed to travel because we have, like, a relationship exemption. Um, well, Canadians are allowed in the EU now, again. So, but it's still very stressful. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that uh, we're, like, taking this as in, like, we're going to get a whole bunch of hate comments. Because I really don't think no. that we are. I really don't think anyone is going to say anything about this. And we're like, we're so sorry, you guys. Don't hate us. Yeah. Please don't cancel us over not recording the podcast for August. <laughs> Shout out to our 40 listeners or whatever. <laughs> we appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so shout out to all of our listeners. We're sorry that... <laughs> August will be destination murder free, but we'll be back in September. 
Um, I think the second week of September or third week of September, because one of the weekends is a long weekend and we don't do. Yeah. We take those long weekends off. So at some point in September. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So anyways. Yeah. Anyways, let's jump into Jumping it. in. <laughs> taking us to Thailand. I'm taking us to Thailand, everybody. Heck yeah. For a second I was like, oh gosh, was I supposed to do Thailand? <laughs> Did I get the wrong one? But we're all good. It's fine. I I did the right case this week, so we're all good. Amazing. (laughs) Okay, so um, I'm taking us to Thailand, um, and I'm covering um, the serial killer Charles Subraj, a.k.a. the Serpent, a.k.a. the Bikini Killer. Oh, Do you know Tegan, who this is? Tegan, I'm watching that Netflix show right now. Wait, what? There's a Netflix show on this? <laughs> yeah, it's called The Serpent. It's based on him. Oh, I knew that. I, I am so interested. It. Okay, Because I was ready? watching the show, but I was like, oh, I should look at this guy. Um, yeah, okay, okay. Okay. Go. I will say, though, that I was looking at a different one um, to start off with, and it was um, Thailand's first serial killer. Um, and it was like these two guys, it was like these two guys who would chop women up and put them in iron boxes, but there was like absolutely no information on it. I was like, okay, how is this their first? What year was it in? Like, I think like the seventies. Okay. Maybe all the information was only in Thai. Maybe, but still like not even a Wikipedia page about it. Holy. I know. Wasn't even a Wikipedia page about this. What? So all of my information is from Murderpedia. Oh. Yeah. All right. Alrighty, so... Well, there has to be some information out there for enough to, like, make a TV show out of it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe, like, it was all... Like, maybe it's all in a different language. And, yeah, maybe. Or I just didn't look well enough. Okay, well, anyways, take it away. I'm excited. <laughs> the people who wrote the the TV show were, like... Hmm, where do we get all the information from this? <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, shoot, there's not a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Guess we'll actually have to do some proper research. <laughs> okay, anyways. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Hachad Bohanani Gurukmuk and Charles Sabraj, um, who was born April 6, 1944 who's better known as Charles Sabraj, who I will just be calling him Charles from now on because that is the easiest for me, um, is a serial killer of Indian and Vietnamese origin who preyed on Western tourists throughout Southeast Asia during the 1970s. Nicknamed the Serpent and the Bikini Killer for his skill at deception and evasion, he allegedly committed at least 12 murders. So, while Charles is widely believed to be a a psychopath, uh, he has a manipulative personality and is incapable of remorse, his motives for killing differ from those of most serial killers. Charles was not driven to murder by deep-seated violent impulses, but rather for personal gain as a means among many to sustain his lifestyle of adventure. Um, That lifestyle, as well as his cunning and cultured personality, made him a celebrity long before his release from prison. Charles uh, immensely enjoyed the attention um, 
charging large, large amounts of money for interviews and film rights. His life has already been the object of four books and three documentaries. Um, and the search for or this search for attention and overconfidence in his own intelligence are named as the cause of his unexpected return to one of the few places on earth where authorities were still willing and able to arrest him and his subsequent downfall. Interesting. Well, I guess that's where uh, the Netflix TV show got us info from then. <laughs> All those documentaries. Yeah. <laughs> from him directly. Don't know if that's a trustful source of information, but... Uh... It's fine. Everything's fine. Um, so Charles was born in Saigon to an unwed Vietnamese mother and an Indian father who soon deserted the family for which um, his mother blamed him. He was adopted by his mother's new boyfriend and French lieutenant stationed in Indochina, but was not given as much attention as the couple's later children. Moving back and forth between France and Indochina with his family, feeling at home in neither place, Charles developed discipline and personality problems growing up and soon turned to petty crime as a teenager. So he got his first jail sentence for burglary in 1963 at um, Poissy Prison near Paris. Um, He weathered the harsh detention conditions using a combination of self-defense and manipulation. The latter earned him special favors from the prison officials, such as keeping books in his cell, and uh, endeared him to the visitor Felix Desconche. So while paroled, Charles moved in with Desconge um, and shared his time between the high society of Paris and the criminal underworld. He started to accumulate money through a series of scams and burglaries and began a relationship with Chantal, a woman from a conservative Parisian family. He was arrested for evading police in a stolen vehicle on the very night that he proposed to her and he was sent back to Poissy for eight months while a supportive Chantal waited for him. I think in the Netflix show, I don't know if this is the exact character, but the Netflix TV show, they made her, his love interest, Quebecois, like from Quebec, but it's played by an English actress. Like I can't remember her name, but she's played by an English act- actress and she doesn't speak French. Oh no. And her Quebecois accent is so horrible like it barely sounds like a french accent let alone a quebecois accent like it's so bad i was like why would you not just cast a quebecois actress or like just make the character french (laughs) anyways that was my little sidebar oh lord um it may not be we'll see you later oh interesting charles and chantelle were married upon his release Soon after facing mounting suspicions by French authorities, he and the now pregnant pregnant Chantelle left France for Asia to escape arrest, traveling through Eastern Europe um, using fake documents and robbing people who befriended them. They arrived um, in Bombay in 1970, where Chantelle gave birth to their baby girl. In Bombay, Charles resumed his criminal lifestyle by running a car theft and smuggling operations, the profits of which were plowed into his growing gambling addiction, um, a botched armed robbery at a jewelry store in Hotel Ashkoka in 1973 led to his arrest and imprisonment, 
Um, faking an illness, he escaped with Chantel's help, but both were uh, captured shortly after. Borrowing mother money from his father in Saigon to bail them out, they fled India for Afghanistan. So in Kabul, the couple resumed their habit of robbing tourists following the hippie trail. Arrested once again, Charles escaped in a similar manner as in India, pretending illness and drugging the hospital guard, then fleeing to Iran. Uh, leaving his family behind. Chantel, although still loyal to him, wanted to leave their criminal past behind and return to France, and she vowed to never see him again. Charles spent the next two years on the run, using as many as 10 stolen passports and visiting several countries in Eastern Europe, as well as the Middle East. He joined in, uh, he was joined in Istanbul by his younger brother, André, who quickly became a pawn in many crimes in Turkey and Greece. Um, both were eventually arrested in Athens. After an identity switch plan gone awry, Charles escaped using his usual manner, leaving his brother to, to serve an 18-year sentence after being turned over to the Turkish police by Greek authorities. So, not really loyal to his family. <laughs> no, definitely not. These guys are, like, globetrotters in the worst way. Yeah. <laughs> like, this would be, like, my dream, traveling the world, going from country to country, but, like, not being a criminal and murdering people to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, um, and, like, honestly, like, how rude is that to, like, make friends with people along your, like, trip? Like, and you just think that you're making friends, and then all of a sudden, like, they've stolen your passport and, like, all of your money, and they're like, peace out. <laughs> yeah. Like and he, you're lucky to not be murdered by them. Yeah. Jesus. So Charles, on the run again, financed his lifestyle by posing as a mysterious drug dealer to impress tourists and defrauding them when they left their uh, when they let their guard down. Um, in Thailand, he met Marie André uh, Le Kerk from Levis, Quebec. So maybe. Oh, that's definitely it. Okay. One. Okay one of the many tourists looking for adventure in the East. Um, subjugated by Charles' personality, Le, Le Clerc uh, quickly became his most devoted follower, turning a blind eye to his crimes and philandering with local women. Uh, Charles gathered, uh, started gathering uh, followers by helping um, them out of difficult situations indebting them to him while he was actually the very cause of their misery. Um, in one case, he helped two former French policemen named Yannick and Jacques um, to recover their passports that he himself had stolen. <laughs> in another, he provided shelter and comfort to another Frenchman named Dominique Renelau, um, whose apparent dysentery illness was actually a result of poisoning by Charles. Yeah, that uh, guy is in the show as well. Oh, Sorry, cool. I'm just like adding. You're like <laughs> being like in the show, in the show. I haven't finished it. I'm only episode three. But that's kind of cool though that you like, you're kind of like you know about all this while I'm telling you. And I can picture it in my brain. Yeah, because the the actors. That's crazy. Um, he was also joined by a young Indian named AJ uh, Chowdhury, a fellow criminal who became his lieutenant. Charles wanted to st start a criminal family of sorts in the also styles the of show, Charles AJ. Manson. Ajay. They call him Ajay. Oh, Ajay. That probably makes more sense than AJ. 
pretty American sounding. It's, I think it's kind of funny that he wants to start like a criminal family like Charles Manson and they're both of their names are Charles. Did he, did he come up with Charles? Like, I don't know when he like added Charles to his name. I think, I think he did. He was sent to boarding school in France, so he might have adopted the name in France. Oh, maybe. Be kind of funny, though, if he changed his name to Charles when he was like, I want to be like Charles Manson. It was then that Charles and um, Ajay committed their first known murders in 1975. Most of the victims had spent some time with the clan before their deaths and were, according to some investigators, potentially uh, recruiters um, who had threatened to expose Charles. It was then that Charles and Ajay committed their first known murders in 1975. Most of the victims had spent some time with the clan before their deaths and were, according to some investigators, um, potentially recruits who had threatened to expose Charles. The first victim was a young woman from Seattle, Teresa Knowlton, um, who was found burned like many of Charles' other victims. Soon thereafter, a young American, Jeannie um, Bolivar, was found drowned in a tide pool in the Gulf of Thailand wearing a flowered bikini. It was only months later that the autopsy and forensic evidence revealed that the drowning um, was actually a murder, not her accidentally dying. Uh, The next victim was a young nomadic Sephardic Jew named uh, Vitaly Hamkin, um, whose burned body was found on the road to the Pattaya resort where Charles and his clan were staying. Um, Dutch students Henk Bittijan, 29, and his fiancée Cornelia Hemker, 25, were invited to Thailand after meeting Charles in Hong Kong. Uh, Just as he had done to Dominique, Charles poisoned them and then nurtured them back to health to gain their obedience. As they recovered, Charles was visited by his previous victim, Hemkin's French girlfriend, uh, Charmaine Karou, coming to investigate her boyfriend's disappearance. Fearing exposure, Charles and Ajay quickly hustled the couple out. Their bodies were found strangled and burned on December 16, 1975. Soon after, Karu was found drowned in circumstances similar to Chini, wearing a similar styled swimsuit. Although the murders of both women were not connected by investigations at the time, they would later um, earn Charles the nickname the Bikini Killer. Um, on December 18th, the day the bodies of Benetage and Hemker were identified, Charles and Leclerc uh, entered Nepal using uh, the couple's passports. There they met and on December 21st and 22nd murdered Canadian Laurent Armand Carey, 26, and California's Connie Bronzich, who was 29. The two victims were incorrectly identified in some sources as Lady Dupar and Annabelle Tremont. Um, I don't know how that happened, but just if you guys are ever looking out there and see those names. It was probably like two other travelers that went missing right around the same time. Probably. In the same area. Oh, Megan, you're so smart. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know, right? Um, Charles um, and Leclerc uh, then returned to Thailand once again using their latest victims' passports before their bodies could be identified. Upon his return to Thailand, Charles discovered that his three French companions had started to suspect um, him, uh, found documents belonging to the murder victims, and fled to Paris after notifying local authorities. Charles then went to Calcutta, where he murdered Israeli scholar Avani Jacob for his passport and used it to move to Singapore with Leclerc and AJ, uh, Ajay. Um, then to India and rather boldly back to Bangkok in March 1976. There they were interrogated by a Thai policeman in connection with the murders, but easily let them off the hook because the authorities feared the negative publicity accompanying a murder trial that would harm the court country's tourist trade. Um, not so easily silenced, however, was the Dutch embassy diplomat, Herman Kippenberg, who was investigating the murder of the two Dutch backpackers and suspected Charles, even though he did not know his real name. Kippenberg uh, started to build a case against him, partly with the help of Charles's neighbor. Police, uh, given police permission to conduct his own search of Charles' apartment, a full month after the suspect had left the country, Kippenberg found a great deal of evidence, such as the victim's documents and uh, poison-laced medicines. Uh, he would then, from then on, accumulate evidence against Charles for decades, despite the lack of cooperation by law enforcement. The TV show, like the Netflix show, kind of revolves around Knippenberg, the Dutch embassy mm-hmm. guy. Cool. Yeah. I, I can Very tell that I'm pronouncing names right when, I, out of the corner of my eye, I can see Megan nodding along every single time <laughs> I touch names. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. good. <laughs> it's, it's funny because um, in this show, he, like, introduces himself to people, and they call him Nippenberg, because, like, it, I think it's K-N, the spelling. Yeah. And he's like, Knippenberg, Knippenberg, or whatever. <laughs> he, like, constantly has to correct people in this show, so it's funny that you got it right. Okay. I'm just pronouncing it like it's spelled. <laughs> oh, Good. <laughs> Um, Okay, so the trio's next stop was uh, in Malaysia, where Ajay was sent on a gem-stealing errand (laughs) and um, disappeared after giving the jewels to Charles. No trace of him was ever found, and it's widely believed that Charles murdered him. Um, Oh no! Oh no, we're getting to a point in the story that I don't know yet. (laughs) It's gonna spoil the show for me. Sorry. It's okay. (laughs) Uh, so it's widely believed it's widely believed that Charles murdered his former accomplice before leaving with Leclerc uh, to sell the jewels in Geneva. Soon back in Asia, Charles started to rebuild his clan, starting in Bombay with two lost Western women named Barbara Cheryl Smith and Mary Ellen Ether. Um, his next next victim was Frenchman Jean Duc Solomon, um, who succumbed to the poison intended to incapacitate him during a robbery. So, gave him a little bit too much. In July 17 or in July 1776. In July 1976, uh, in New Delhi, Charles and three women tricked uh, a tour group of postgraduate French students into accepting them as guides. 
He then drugged them with pills where he pretended they, which he pretended were anti-dysentery medicine. However, when the drugs started acting too quickly and the students started dropping unconscious where they stood, three of them quickly realized what was happening and overcame Charles, leading to his capture by police. Could you imagine? Just, like, seeing these people, like, out on a tour and then all of them just, like, dropping, like, lies around you. Like, mm -mm. mm-mm. During interrogation, Barbara and Mary Ellen quickly cracked and confessed to everything. Charles was then charged with the murder of Solomon, and all four were sent to the Tihar prison outside of New Delhi um, while awaiting a formal trial. Um, conditions inside the prison were unbearable for both Barbara and Mary Ellen, um, in which they attempted suicide during the two years before their trial. However, Charles had entered uh, with precious gems concealed in his body and was experienced in bribing captors and living comfortably in jail. I would... No, thank you. <laughs> like... Could you, I, I, just imagining, like, ha- having to pass the jewels out of your body. Ouch. Yeah. That sounds like it hurts, actually. Um, Charles uh, turned his trial into a show, hiring and firing lawyers at whim, bringing his recent paroled and still loyal brother Andre to help, and eventually going on a hunger strike. He nonetheless um, was sentenced to 12 years in prison instead of the expected death penalty. Wait, so his brother was still loyal to him after he, like, hung him out to to dry, just left him there to go into jail. Yeah, dipped dipped on an 18-year prison sentence and was like, hey, dude. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'd be pissed. Sarah, if you're listening to this, I would not give you the same love and appreciation that Charles' brother just (laughs) showed him. Uh, Leclerc uh, was found guilty of drugging uh, the French students, then later paroled and returned to Canada where she developed ovarian cancer. She was still claiming her innocence and reportedly still loyal to Charles when she died in her home in April 1984. Um, Charles' systematic bribery of prison guards at the Tahar reached outrageous levels. He led a life of luxury inside the jail with TV, gourmet food. Having befriended both the guards and the prisoners, he would walk in and out of jail whenever he wanted. Um, reveling in his notoriety, he gave interviews to Western authors and journalists, such as Oz, Magazine, uh, Oz Magazine's Richard Neville in the late 1970s and Alan Dawson in 1984. He freely talked about his murders um, while never actually admitting to them and pretended that his actions were in retaliation against Western imperialism in Asia, an excuse which most criminologists find highly doubtful. He also needed to find a way to prolong his sentence uh, since the 20-year Thai arrest warrant against him would still be valid on his intended release date leading to the deportation and almost certain execution. So, in March 1986, on his 10th year in prison, he threw a big party for his prisoners, 
uh, for his prison and guard friends and having drugged them all with sleeping pills he walked out of the jail how did he get sleeping pills in prison because he bribes everyone with the jewels that he brought in up his booty hole my gosh (laughs) so he just throws a party and drugs everyone and walks out of the prison. Could you imagine oh my being the person that smuggled in those sleeping pills for him? And they were like, what are you going to do with this? And he's like, nothing. <laughs> then, like, you're passed out. Because he he drugs up and, like, you're like, shit. Oh, that's what he was going to do. <laughs> All right. Which one of you gave him the sleeping pills this time? Charles was uh, quickly caught in... Goa and his prison term prolonged by 10 years, just as he had hoped. Um, On February 17th, 1997, 52-year-old Charles was released with most warrants, evidence, and even witnesses against him long lost. Um, Without any country to deport him to, Indian authorities let him return to France. Charles then lived in the suburbs of Paris, enjoying a comfortable retirement He hired an agent and charged thousands of dollars for interviews and photographs and upwards of $15 million for a movie deal based on his life. Meanwhile, this, (laughs) oh, this guy worked the system and just exploited every bit of it he could. Yeah. Oh, that makes me so mad. And this is why we have laws that don't allow people to make a profit off of, um, the heinous crimes? crimes that they commit. I did not know we had that law. Um, I think... It's a good law. I think we do in Canada and the U.S. Where, like, you can't sell rights to stuff like this. And if anything, that money should be going to the victims. Yeah. So, meanwhile, families of victims and investigators such as Kippenberg despaired of seeing justice served. Then, on September 17th, 2003, Charles was unexpectedly spotted by a journalist in a street of... Kathmandu and quickly reported to the local authorities. He was arrested two days later by uh, Nepalese police in the casino of the Yak and Yeti Hotel, which honestly (laughs) anything um, in retaliation to Western imperialism in Asia (laughs) should be the name of the Yak and Yeti Hotel. (laughs) Why? Why did they do that? Um, on August 20th, 2004, the Kathmandu District Court sentenced him to life imprisonment for the 1975 murders of Bronzich and Chari. Most of the evidence against him came from the painstaking accumulations of documents by Kippenberg and Interpol. Charles' motives for returning to Nepal remain unknown, although arrogance and need for attention likely had a part in it. He um, appealed the conviction, claiming that he was sentenced without trial. In September, his lawyers announced Charles' wife in France would file a case against the French government before the European Court of Human Rights for refusing to provide him with any assistance. His conviction was confirmed in 2005 by Kathmandu's Court of Appeals. In late 2007, uh, news media reported that Charles' lawyer had appealed the current French President Nicolas Sarkozy for intervention with Nepal. In 2008, uh, Charles announced his engagement to Nahati Biswa, 
20 years old from Nepal, um, on July 7th, 2008, issuing a press release through his fiance. Uh, he claimed that he was never convicted of murder by any court and asked the media not to refer to him as a serial killer. <laughs> um, later, it was claimed that uh, he married his fiance on October 9th, 2008, on the occasion of Bada Dashami at Nepalese festival. Um, in a much famed and not publicized wedding that took place in the jail. The following day, Nepalese jail authorities dismissed the claim of his marriage. They said that Nahita and her family had been allowed to conduct a tika ceremony along with the relatives of hundreds of other prisoners. The further, they further claimed that it was not a wedding but part of the ongoing Dashani festival when elders put the vermilion marks on the forehead of those younger to them to signify their blessings. On July, uh, in July 2010, the Supreme Court of uh, Nepal postponed the verdict on the appeal filed by Charles against the district court's verdict sentencing him life to imprisonment for the murder of the American backpacker um, Brosnich in 1975. Charles had appealed against the uh, district court's verdict in 2006, calling it unfair and accusing the judges of racism while handing out the sentence. Uh, July 30, 2010, uh, the Nepalese Supreme Court upheld the verdict issuing, uh, issued by the district court in Kathmandu of the 20-year life term for the murder of Brosnich and of another year plus um, a fine for using a fake passport to travel. Um, the seizure of all of his properties uh, was also ordered by the court. His mother-in-law, lawyer, and his wife, Nikita, Nahita, expressed that they were dissatisfied with the verdict and uh, claimed that Charles had been denied justice. Um, so Charles currently has another case pending against him in Bakhtapur district for the murder of Laurent Armad Kerry, the Canadian-born tourist. And that is Charles Sobraj, the serpent, aka the bikini killer. Wow. Crazy, hey? That guy, oh my gosh. That's a crazy story. And like, he knew exactly who to prey on, these like backpackers who are, like, open to everything on their trip through, like, Asia or whatever, trip through Asia or Europe. Um, I want to know why posing as, like, a drug kingpin was something that, like, attracted tourists. (laughs) He was like, hey, I run drugs. Want to hang out with me? And they're all like, yeah, sure, let's party. Yeah, probably just for the party thing. Because I know, like, in the Netflix show, he's kind of posing as a jewel seller or whatever and, like, kind of convincing tourists. So I don't know if this actually happened, but this was just in the show. He was kind of, like, convincing tourists to um, buy the jewels from him because he was like, oh, you can, you can like, this goes for, like, ten times the price mm. in Belgium, in, like, Europe. Like, go home, sell it. Like, I make my money, you make even more money. And then when they don't do that he like drugs them and steals from them and stuff (laughs) 
It's like, oh, you won't buy my jewels. Okay. I see. I see you. Yeah. Wow. Well, good job covering that. That was so... What a crazy story. I know, right? I'm definitely going to have to watch the Netflix show yeah, after this. The Serpent. It's a Netflix original, so it's it'll be on Netflix, like, everywhere. Um, should I take it away, then? I, I also have kind of a longer case today. I think you should take it away. I'm excited. Yeah, so I'm taking everyone to Gibraltar today. My sources for this week are Wikipedia... A couple different Wikipedia articles, a 2018journal.ie article, and a special ops magazine article by Eric Soff. So today I'm covering Operation Flavius. So first a little bit about Gibraltar. Gibraltar is a British overseas territory at the very southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, which is south of Spain. Um, It's very interesting as the landscape of the very tiny territory is dominated by the Rock of Gibraltar. Um, So Gibraltar is often just called the Rock because it's mainly this big giant mountain uh, made of limestone with like the city at the base. From the top of the Rock of Gibraltar, you can see right across the water to Morocco, which is only like a short boating distance away. The entire territory of Gibraltar is just under seven square kilometers or about 2.6 square miles. So it's very tiny. That's very small. Yeah. Uh, Gibraltar is a very diverse, densely populated territory with over 30,000 people living in the tiny area. So that makes it about 5,000 people per square kilometer. (laughs) So very dense. Their main language is English, however, because there are so many people from all across Europe living in Gibraltar, the people are often bilingual in Spanish and English, and there are an additional languages spoken, so Arabic, Maltese, and then there's a local dialect of Yanito, which is a mixture of Spanish, English, Maltese, Portuguese, Genoese, Italian, Genoa Italian, and Hecatia, which is a Judeo-Spanish language. So very interesting. I actually know, um, I had a professor who was from Gibraltar, so that's the only reason why I knew Gibraltar existed, uh, from all the way over here in Canada. Uh, the territory is a bit of a point of contention between Spain and Britain, or it used to be, uh, I'm not sure what the current status is, um, but they've both claimed the territory as their own in recent history. Britain first captured the territory in 1704 during the War of Spanish Succession. And 10 years later, the territory was officially handed over to the British thanks to the Treaty of Utrecht. In the 50 or so years after, uh, the Spanish for Spanish tried, to, tried multiple times to retake Gibraltar from the Brits, but each time they were ultimately unsuccessful. In the 1950s, the Spanish dictator Francisco Franco again claimed Spanish sovereignty over Gibraltar. But the citizens of Gibraltar overwhelmingly wanted to stay under British rule and, like, rejected the Spanish claim. And as a result, Franco completely closed the border to Gibraltar. And the border to Gibraltar and Spain would stay closed until 1985, when Spain came out of its dictatorship. In the 2000s, Britain and Spain held negotiations to perhaps have shared sovereignty over Gibraltar. But once again, a referendum of Gibraltarians on this new shared sovereignty completely rejected it with like 99% of the population against the shared sovereignty plan. They obviously wanted to stay uh, with the UK. 
in 2020, Gibraltar was dragged out of the EU with the rest of the UK, which I can imagine severely impacted the people living there and the people living in Spain due to the, for their right to free movement within the EU because a lot of Spanish citizens work in Gibraltar. About 46% of the Gibraltar workforce li- uh, works in Gibraltar and lives in Spain. Yeah. However, <laughs> yeah. I would be pissed. Yeah. Uh, but however, as of late, the UK is in talks with Spain and the EU to negotiate a special deal for Gibraltar and its citizens. So they're looking at kind of like a Schengen area, like Gibraltar becoming part of like the Schengen area uh, and not the UK is what I think. So good for Gibraltar. <laughs> I think a lot of people in the UK would really love that. Uh, Gibraltar is a popular cruise ship tourism destination, a popular tax-free shopping destination, and I believe it's also like a tax haven, so I guess it's also a popular finance and banking (laughs) destination. And all that fun stuff. It's got like a really hot climate, it's right in the south of Spain, um, and it looks beautiful. So on to my case. Uh, This week, I'm covering Operation Flavius, which was, in short, a plot by the British Special Forces to kill members of the Provisional Irish Republic Army, Army, otherwise known as the PIRA or the IRA. So we're talking about the Troubles. I'm excited. The IRA was an Irish Republican paramilitary organization that fought to end British control of Northern Ireland and to reunify the two Irelands. Most people associate the IRA with the Troubles or the Northern Ireland Conflict, which was a low-level war spanning from the 1960s until until 1998. However, the tension between Northern Ireland and Britain has been going on for a very long time before that. So even after researching my case this week, I will admit I still don't fully understand all of the nuances, like the motives and the events in the Troubles, but at the core, there was the IRA and the Irish National Liberation Army and other uh, Republican paramilitary groups who were the Northern Irish paramilitary groups who wanted to end British rule and end British sovereignty over Northern Ireland. And then there were the Ulster Loyalist paramilitary groups like the Ulster Defence Association or the Ulster Volunteer Force, who were the mainly Protestant groups who wanted to remain under British rule. And then there were the British armed forces who were the state security forces there to attempt to quell violence and maintain the British control. While the conflict was mainly political, there was also an ethnic slash religious component to the Troubles with the majority of the Northern Irish Republicans, so the people who wanted to leave uh, the UK being Catholic, and then a majority of the Ulster uh, and British being Protestant. I feel like you get a little bit of um, good information about all this from watching Dairy Girls. I don't know if you've... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was like my main source of knowledge (laughs) regarding all this. Dairy Girls doesn't... It's a Netflix TV show for those of you who don't know, but it's set in Dairy in Ireland in... During the Troubles, I think in the 80s. Yeah. Or early 90s it's set. And it's just kind of from the perspective of like a group of teenagers living there mm-hmm. um, during the Troubles. And so that you get you get hints of what's going on, but it's mainly about their life during the Troubles. And I think it's 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 a really funny show. And I think it, it like kind of tells a story about that time 
very well without like fully focusing on it. Yeah. So the paramilitary groups like the IRA carried out a number of guerrilla style campaigns against the British to show their distaste for British rule. And British forces often fought back, or British forces and the Ulster loyalist uh, paramilitary groups often fought back through special operations. The paramilitary groups on both sides carried out campaigns of violence against each other and against infrastructure, commercial targets, political targets, and sometimes um, even civilians in the community. And the British security forces are said to have colluded with the Ulster loyalist paramilitary groups um, to go against the IRA or the Republican paramilitary groups. The conflict saw over 3,500 people killed, 1,800 of them civilians, and over 50,000 casualties in Northern Ireland, Britain, and sometimes throughout the rest of Europe. So on March 6th, 1988, this violence spread to Gibraltar when three members of the IRA were shot and killed by undercover members of the British Special Air Service, or SAS, in what is known as Operation Flavius. In November 1987, so the year before Operation Flavius, several known IRA members were discovered traveling from Belfast, Northern Ireland, to Spain under false names. Despite trying to hide their identities, Sean Savage and Danny McCann were spotted making their way into Spain. This alerted the British Security Service, or MI5 or MI6, I can't, my sources kind of said both of MI5 and MI6 were working, like different sources said different things, so MI5 or MI6, both British security services, they'd heard whisperings of intelligence that the IRA was planning an attack in Gibraltar, so when they saw the IRA traveling to Spain, their suspicions seemed to be confirmed, and um, they worked with Spanish authorities to discover that an IRA unit was operating in Costa del Sol, which is a region in the south of Spain. Throughout, the, throughout late 1987 and early 1988, MI5 conducted surveillance on these IRA members in Spain and Gibraltar. Once an IRA member was spotted at a changing of the guard ceremony outside Gibraltar's governor's residence, MI5 and Gibraltarian authorities began to suspect that the IRA was plotting to place a car bomb to attack British soldiers as a change for their shift at the governor's residence. Only a couple years before, in 1986, the IRA had placed a bomb in a car and driven it onto the Royal Ulster Constabulary Station in the Birches, a small village in Northern Ireland, where it had detonated and completely destroyed the station and injured seven people. Because of this, the British authorities were on high alert for similar attacks and thought this was being planned in Gibraltar. To test their theory and to give themselves time to plan out a, a counter-terrorism plan, the Gibraltar government cancelled their changing of the guard ceremonies for a couple of months from December to February, saying that there had to be renovations so that it was cancelled. In February 1988, when the ceremony resumed, they again spotted an IRA member and they were certain their suspicions were right. The Gibraltarian authorities sent a request for special assistance from the British government to stop the suspected attack, and the British sent the Special Air Service, or SIS. Throughout this period of British surveillance, the IRA was indeed plotting an attack on Gibraltar. They had just su suffered a loss to the SAS, where in uh, eight IRA operatives were killed, in addition to one civilian being killed by the SAS. Um, so they had to plan their uh, plan carefully for their next attack. The IRA then allegedly set its sights on Gibraltar for a number of reasons. 
It was considered an easier target because security was lighter than in Northern Ireland, and Gibraltar was also seen as a good political target for the IRA. In the late 80s, it remained one of Great Britain's colonial imperialist territories, an ideology that the IRA just despised because they thought that they were also victims of colonialism um, from Great Britain. So attacking Gibraltar would be making a statement against Northern Ireland occupation. And they plan to do it by attacking the changing of the guard. Two IRA members were sent to Gibraltar to carry out the attack, Sean Savage and Daniel McCann, the two that had been spotted by the authorities back in November. So fast forward to March 1st, 1988. Gibraltarian authorities notice an Irish woman entering the territory under the name Mary Parkin. This Irish woman had been spotted attending many of the guard ceremonies in the past month as she was coming and going from Gibraltar to Spain, and the British SAS are sure that she is conveying information back to the IRA, who are, the, who are at this point stationed in Ma- Malaga, Spain. On March 3rd, 1988, a team of 16 SAS operatives arrive in Gibraltar, all on different flights at different times to remain undercover. They were instructed as part of Operation Flavius to arrest the three subjects. Sean Savage, Daniel McCann, and the woman, Mary Parkin, whose real identity was Mariad Farrell. Myred Farrell. It's a very Irish name. I hope I <laughs> didn't pronounce that wrong. So, however, after further surveillance of the IRA, the SAS members were authorized to use deadly force because they thought they were to use a remote detonated car bomb and deadly force was the only way to prevent endangering civilian and British military lives if these IRA people had um, a remote detonator. On March 6th, 1988, the three IRA members entered Gibraltar from Spain, all driving across the border uh, in a couple different cars at different times. Sean Savage entered at 12.45 p.m., during which an MI5 officer recognized him, ordering a tail to follow him to ensure it was actually him and to see where he was going. Savage parked his car in in the car park nearby the changing of the guard ceremony. At 2.30 p.m., Daniel McCann and Marriott Farrell were spotted coming through the border and were also followed. I actually think they walked across the border, not drove. Um, And... SAS followed them as they met up with Sean Savage in the parking lot near the changing of the guard. The three then left their cars and began walking around the city. Once the IRA were out of range of the car park, SAS dispatched a bomb squad to examine their vehicle and the bomb disposal officers were very concerned considering the vehicle a threat. Due to this threat, the four SAS officers called soldiers A, B, C, and D were dispatched through the city to to intercept the three IRA members and arrest them. At 3.40pm, another soldier, called Soldier F, ordered soldiers A, B, C, and D to arrest the IRA members immediately, like right away. At this time, Savage, McCann, and Farrell were walking along Winston Churchill Avenue, being followed by the SAS soldiers. As the soldiers were approaching them, the three seemed to realize what was happening, and Savage split up from Farrell and McCann, heading south and walking past the soldiers as he did so. This forced soldiers C and D to follow Savage, while soldiers A and B continued to follow Farrell and McCann. At the same time, the SAS soldier in charge of the operation, I think Soldier F, he was trying to organize a vehicle to apprehend the transport 
and transport the three members into custody. They ordered a random Gibraltarian police car, the officer having no idea of the operation, to urgently come back to the station. But the police car got stuck in heavy traffic nearby Winston Churchill Avenue, forcing it to turn its sirens on. But then this started, startled Farrell and McCann, who were nearby, who were just outside a Shell gas station along Winston Churchill Avenue. So startled by the siren, Farrell looked back and saw the undercover officers right as Soldier A was drawing his pistol. She then caught McCann's attention, and McCann allegedly made a quick, quick, aggressive movement with his arm towards his chest. Soldier A took this as McCann either reaching for a gun or worse, reaching for his remote detonator, and Soldier A shot at them, hitting McCann in the back. Soldier A then saw Farrell allegedly reach for her purse, and he again thought she was reaching for a detonator, so Soldier A shot her too, also shooting her in the back. He then shot McCann again three times, once in the body and twice in the head. Soldier B then joined into the shooting, shooting Farrell twice and McCann twice, then switching back and shooting Farrell again three times. That seems a bit intense. Very intense. Especially because their weapons couldn't have been large weapons yeah because so they were obviously shooting a lot at them which i don't think you're supposed to do uh, especially if they're trying to how they were trying. take them alive like you could have done like one shot to like injure and like stop them and then you could have ran over and been like i'm arresting you yeah so the pow, i think pow, they were pow, just pow, like pow 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 yeah, I think they got trigger happy because they were like, oh my god, they've got a detonator, they've got a detonator, they're gonna blow the city up or whatever. Yeah, but they also don't know. They think yeah. they do. So meanwhile, soldiers C and D were following Savage, and just as they were allegedly moving to arrest him, they heard the gunfire ring out. Upon hearing the gunfire, Savage turned around, allegedly reaching into his jacket pocket. Soldiers C and D also assumed he was also reaching for a remote detonator, so they opened fire. Soldier C shot Savage six times, while Soldier D shot at him nine times. What the literal hell? I know, quite excessive. Yeah. After killing the IRA members, the soldiers all put on berets to identify themselves as SAS officers. Because they were just plain clothes. So they put on their berets, and the berets were actually, funnily enough, worn by British soldiers in the late 80s to look less scary while they were stationed like in northern ireland because helmets were too too scary looking so they wore berets instead to make them more approachable immediately after the shooting the area was evacuated as the bomb squad again looked at savage's car still parked in the car park four hours later the authorities announced that they had successfully defused a bomb which they had found in savage's car Furthermore, when examining the bodies, they found a set of keys in Farrell's pocket. After some searching, they discovered the keys were to a Ford Fiesta parked in a parking lot in Marbella, Spain, about 80 kilometers away from Gibraltar. The car was filled with explosives, ammunition, and detonators. The next day, on March 7th, 1998, the British Foreign Secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, gave a speech about the incident in the British House of Commons. In his speech, he detailed the events of the day before. His statement, however, contradicted the statement of authorities from the day of the incident. So now I'm going to read part of the statement. Quote, About 3.30pm, all three left the scene, all three of the IRA members left the scene and started to walk back towards the border. 
On their way to the border, they were alleged they were challenged by the security forces. When challenged, they made movements which led the military personnel operating in support of the Gibraltar police to conclude that their own lives and the lives of others were under threat. In light of this response, they, the IRA members, were also shot. Uh, were shot. Those killed were subsequently found not to be ha- not to have been carrying arms. The parked car was subsequently dealt with by a military bomb disposal team. It has now been established that it did not contain an explosive device. Unquote. Oh, sweet so, lord. <laughs> yeah, so there was never even a bomb, and none of the three of them were armed. I had a feeling that this was the way that it was going to go. So, but the press coverage, despite exploding with coverage about the bomb found on March 6th, they didn't really focus on the fact that now we they'd found out that the government had initially lied about the bomb being found. Press in the following weeks, at least in Britain, focused on the attack planned by the IRA, and the discovery of the explosives in Marbella seemed to wipe away any of the government's guilt in lying about the events. I will just say that, like, from this, it's obvious that they were planning something, and they were going, like, maybe they weren't actually going to attack, but it kind of looks like a dry run to me. A practice run. Yeah, I agree. I think there's definitely, they were definitely suspicious, but everyone just went about this a little too quickly. So I, the deadly force was not necessarily, absolutely not. was not necessarily, was not necessary. However, they did need to be apprehended because they might have killed people. They could have been able to give useful information, like regarding other things that might have saved other people's lives if they weren't killed. So because these things don't happen in a vacuum, though, um, Operation Flavius had ripple effects back in Northern Ireland, and it caused more violence in the country. Savage, McCann, and Farrell's bodies were flown back to Ireland, first stopping first in Dublin before being transported to Belfast, Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, there was animosity between mourners and the police and British forces as the coffins were transported back to their families. British, sol- British, sol- British soldiers posted up in Savage, McCann, and Farrell's neighborhoods, and I imagine their presence was quite unwelcome by the residents because the soldiers attempted to stop any public mourning of the dead. A joint funeral was held for Savage, McCann, and Farrell on March 16, 1998, at Milltown Cemetery in Belfast. The police had agreed to have a minimal presence to allow for mourners to feel comfortable, in exchange for the IRA agreeing there would be no salute by their masked gunmen. This agreement, though, was leaked to a self-proclaimed quote-unquote freelance loyalist paramilitary, named Michael Stone, who showed up to the funeral knowing that there was a low police presence, knowing that there were a lot of Republican supporters and IRA supporters there. He attacked the mourners there, throwing hand grenades and opening fire, injuring 60 people and killing three people, one of which was a man named Kevin Brady. So then Kevin Brady's death led to more violence. At his funeral on March 19, 1998, during the solemn procession of his coffin to the cemetery, A car driven by two British Army corporals sped by and drove into the path of the procession. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I think once they realized what they were doing, the car tried to reverse, but they were blocked by the vehicles in the funeral procession, and they were then surrounded by an angry angry mob of mourners who thought their actions were disrespectful. 
As the mob surrounded the car, one of the corporals fired his pistol, which at first subdued the crowd, but then he, the crowd got even more angry and they dragged the two British corporals out of the car and beat them. A priest was able to stop the beating, but then the crowd found an SAS identity card on one of the corporals, which made them very suspicious of the two corporals and resulted in members of the IRA present at the funeral to kidnap the corporals and eventually kill them in what is now known as the corporal killings. This in turn sparked the largest criminal investigation in Northern Ireland history and just created more tension in Northern Ireland and Belfast because Republicans saw the immense effort put in by the police into solving the murder of the corporals and felt as if investigations into violence against Republicans and Northern Ireland citizens were not taken as seriously. This is just extremely messy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so as is the norm, okay, on, we're on the, our last leg here. So, as is the norm in the UK for sudden and or controversial deaths, an inquest was launched to investigate Operation Flavius and the deaths of McCann, Farrell, and Savage. However, unusually, there was quite a delay between the event and the inquest. Eight weeks after the shooting, the Gibraltar coroner announced that the inquest would take place in June. But then two weeks after he announced this, Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, announced that, nope, the inquest would be indefinitely postponed and it would not happen. Oh, Iron Lady. <laughs> but then... Oh, God. <laughs> this announcement, I guess, didn't reach Gibraltar because the inquest did take place. Um, it started in September of 1988. The inquiry was held to be determined to determine if the killing of McCann, Farrell, and Savage was unlawful or should be considered murder. Almost 80 witnesses testified and evidence was reviewed, and the inquest concluded at the end of September. The jury concluded that the killing was indeed lawful, and that the three had been lawfully killed while preparing an act of terrorism. I mean, I guess that <laughs> that worked in Margaret's favor for not being listened to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but after the inquiry, evidence was uncovered that completely contradicted the inquiry's version of events as presented by the British government. Oh, God. A Gibraltar police operations report was leaked that indicated that the random police officer ordered to come back to the station, the one whose siren had kind of apparently triggered the, the series of events that led to the killings, that wasn't random at all. He had always been assigned to the operation. However, of course, no one could realize that putting on a siren would end up in death. And then Spanish intelligence was also leaked. And the Spanish said that they had informed the British authorities that they had been surveilling the IRA while they were in Malaga. And that the Spanish authorities had told the British authorities that... They believed there was no bomb threat with the IRA when they entered Gibraltar on March 6th. Oh my god. But it seems as if the British were purposely not cooperating fully with the Spanish authorities when around this time. Because at the time, Spain was trying to get into the Western European Union, or I guess the EU, I guess now. But Britain was trying to keep Spain out of the Union. In the end, the British cut a deal with the Spanish... Their silence about Operation Flavius for Britain's support of them entering the EU. This this event has had lasting impacts. It's considered one of the most controversial and violent events to ever happen in Gibraltar, and is considered one of the great controversies of the Troubles. And that 
is my case this week, the case of Operation Flavius. That was wild, Megan. <laughs> Two big, wild, long cases to leave you before we leave yeah, for exactly. a month. Really only two weeks, if you think about it, because you would have only missed just two episodes. That's true. Did you get an extra long one today? Yes. Happy things now? Yes. Okay. Um, While we're recording this, it is July 23rd, 2021, aka the 11th anniversary of One Direction. Um, Maybe I will eat the last piece of cake that I have for my 10 year anniversary. You still have that ice cream cake? <laughs> yeah, I moved with it. Oh my gosh. Re- Tegan has a piece of cake, ice cream cake, a One Direction ice cream cake. She's had it for like five years. I, Megan, one year. I got it last year for their anniversary, 10 year anniversary. I thought you've had it for like five years. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, one year. That's better not much (laughs) that's a little bit more acceptable i just i think you should just eat it i think so maybe i'll eat it tonight i just didn't want to eat harry's face ah that makes sense like that's the only piece that wasn't eaten um other than that i read a book of poetry by maya angelou it was great um um i had to go in for a covid test this week I'm COVID negative, by the way, everyone, but I've had this, like, kind of cough for the past 10 or so days, and I thought it was just, like, kind of a symptom of the first vaccine, but it is not a symptom of the vaccine. It is a symptom of COVID, not the vaccine. So I had to go in for a COVID test, and that was my first one ever, and it hurts. I got the swab up the nose. Oh. It feels like you're pinching the nose, like mm-hmm. way deep in your brain. Oh. <clears throat> after this, after we finish recording, I'm probably going to, um, maybe not right away, but later on in the evening, I'm going to take my dog Bentley for a stand-up paddleboard <gasps> ride. Oh my goodness. She loves it. She loves it. She loves, like, like, we go down to the dock, and she just jumps right on the paddleboard. Because she's scared to, like, jump on sometimes, but sometimes... She's just, like, it, like is on. If she's really... She's like, I'm on it. I'm on. Is that what you've been doing in the evenings? That's been your paddling? Yeah. I thought you were kayaking, maybe. Maybe. I get notifications no. every time Megan works out with <laughs> my phone. Because I like to keep um, track of her. Make sure that yes. she's healthy. Yeah. Um, But the one thing I will say is that Bentley is scared of things that are in like floating on the surface of the water Uh and like floating kind of unnaturally we like paddled out and there's a buoy that's kind of anchored in the middle of the bay and I noticed she was like staring intently at it so I was like oh you want to go see the buoy let's go see the buoy and oh she's like looking at me and she's like the buoy (laughs) um and we get closer and she's like staring at it and then she starts growling and we get closer and she from she was at the front of the paddleboard as we get closer she freaks out she runs behind me so she's behind me she's pressed her body up behind me she's got her like haunches up over my shoulder and she's shivering and she's growling at it 
from behind me. What the it was hell? so funny. And then she did the same thing with a rock that was kind of half in the water, close to a, a little island we paddle out to. And she was so scared of it that she fell off the board trying to run away from it. Oh, Bentley. She, like, backed right off the board. I was like, Bentley. Little no. chicken. Uh huh. She's down below me and she's like, I keep saying her name and she's like, hello? Me? Yes. Milo's lying at my feet, currently stretched out on his back. Yeah. Oh, he's dreaming. His tail's shaking. Alrighty, folks. Well, I think I should go back to work. (laughs) Yeah, Tegan's taking like an extra long lunch break. It's fine. I started extra early today to make up for it. One of the fabulous things about working from home is you can do, you can take like a little bit of a longer lunch break and then just add time on and like it doesn't really impact anything. Anything. It's not like you have to leave the office at a certain time. It's not like you have to get home because of your commute. You're already home. It's It's so easy. I'm not, I'm sort of looking back to going back to the office in September, but I'm also not. So I think there needs to be like a balance between it, like a mix. Like you can work from home some days if you need to. You can work from the office if you want to. Yeah. I saw. I think that's sort of what they're pushing for, but I work for such a large organization that I don't think they're looking for that flexibility because they're like, oh my God, there's so many people, like people are going to take advantage of it and exploit it. Like, no. That's dumb. (laughs) I know. (sighs) Okay, Tegan, would you like to know where you're going next week? Yes, please. Or I guess in two weeks? Oh, yeah, in two weeks. Mm-hmm. You are going to Austria. Ooh. I've been to Australia. Now I'm going to Austria. And I am going to Aruba. I'm so jealous. Back- to the Caribbean. Yeah. Holy. Megan's just like living it up in the white sandy beaches. It's fine. I'll be out in the Alps. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, we will be back in September after taking August off doing... <laughs> you looked so alarmed. Did you not hear my phone ringing? No. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, okay, thanks everyone. Uh, we'll be back in September after taking August off. We'll definitely have a lot of stuff to talk to you about then. A lot of happy things, hopefully. Follow us on Instagram at Destination Murder Pod. Leave us a rate, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Um, and we will see you later. And in as September. they say in Gibraltar, Thai, Lakan. Oh. Goodbye. Gibraltar. Or ciao, I guess. Yeah. They probably say ciao a lot there. Ciao, Bella. <laughs> Arrivederci. Arrivederci. Happy Goodbye. One Direction until 11 year anniversary day. <laughs>